Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? Marky Mark, what's up, man? Hey, Jake, how's it going? Uh, going pretty good. I've uh, been doing a lot of aquarium work, doing some stuff I've been wanting to do. I uh, just got back from a trip to Houston for the Reef Currents event. Yeah. And uh, finally, finally visited Aquarium Design Group's gallery. ADG. ADG. They've been around for so long, it's easy to forget that they're around because they've been doing it for so long. They're not really noisy. They're like busy doing aquascapes and building tanks for people. Oh my God, dude. When I walked into that showroom, I was in, in a literal trance for 30 minutes before I could focus on anything. Nice. Oh my God. And I, I, I when I started coming out of the trance, I realized that that's probably what the studio looks like for visitors when they see it for the first time. Just like, how do you even focus on anything? Everything's so bright and shiny and pretty. And um, I don't know. It's just so cool to be, to be there and take inspiration from like a commercial facility that is just so 110% aesthetic and yeah. functional. I mean, those tanks, oh my God. Well, and the attention to detail, I'm, I've never been, but just obviously a lot of pictures, right? But just mm -hmm. um, meticulous is the word that always comes to mind when I see those tanks and such a different, uh, such a rare thing in the marine trade, I think, you know, or marine hobby to have that level of meticulous detail and, and just, yeah. It was so refreshing to see just like a different school of aquarium thought right on the tail end of us just discussing the different types of tanks um, through the years. And currently, yeah. um, their reef tank is like 10 times overgrown. I think it's been going for like 12 years or something. It has the, it still has the original ecozotic cannons on there. Oh, like wow. Seven, no. No, like 10 of them <laughs> with a few Kessels mixed in and their corals just have grown over each other again and again and again. It's just a big mess of like legacy coral growth. It was crazy. I didn't even take a picture. I'm like, oh yeah, that, need that thing needs a reset. But um, yeah, the freshwater tanks, they don't look real. They don't look real <laughs> in real life as you're looking at them. You're just like, how is there so much art packed into such a small volume? absolutely flabbergasted i'm coming back here i'm like oh man i need i need to apply more aquascaping principles to my tanks and uh there's this one tank it was a six foot red sea um tank it looked straight out of the splash sea aquascaping competition from like 2001 do you remember that one with like Flower pots, green star polyps, daisies, some some carnations, some long polyp leather corals, a few things mixed in in there, a really muted Australian scoli, like dark brown with just a little bit of, of pistachio green. Is um, that the one with uh, that sort of? That was like the first time I saw the um, the blue eye cardinal fish. Is that the and he thing? had blue eye cardinal fish and some little masked gobies. Not a single large fish. Not a single flashy fish. I guarantee you, Mike and Jeff Sensky have never seen that competition from Splash Sea from the early two thousands. It looked straight out of there. It was you know, six foot tank with maybe like 
30 pounds of rock. All this open space on top. It was like, it was really impressive. I'm going to be putting together a different style video of that one. And I'm going to be taking a lot away from it. Yeah, the other thing for me too that I mean, I th we've talked about this too is scale, right? Um, th they can make the tiniest little planted aquarium, freshwater planted aquarium look huge in photographs mm -hmm. because they don't, the, the fish they choose are smaller and then the plants they use are scale appropriate to the point that it's, it makes the tank bigger. And that's something that I rarely see in the marine hobby. Part of it is because a lot of our fish are also functional additions for algae control and whatever. Yep. But, mm -hmm. but um, and you know, it's uh, small fish are not, I mean, gobies, you can do some cool nano fish, but it's, it's also a little trickier. Like whatever happened to the parvillous cardinal fish? Remember those guys, the little red dot? They don't live tail? long. Yeah. It's just, it's a lot of work and you nobody know, nobody ever figured that out or 15 is it? bucks a piece. I mean, it's a tiny fish. It just, it just probably doesn't have that lifespan. Yeah. You no, know, if you did everything you could to extend its lifespan by feeding it more, keeping it at a cooler temperature, getting them while they're younger, what are you going to extend their life from six to 12 months? Yeah. You know, <laughs> just for that one fish. But yeah, it was so cool because none of the corals were neon. Yeah. All the, everything was colorful, but not like burning your retinas and it just flowed together super well. Um, Can I ask I mean, what yeah, the spectrum of lighting was? It was, it was, um, so they were using uh, three, um, Red Sea Reef LEDs. Oh God, I didn't look real close to see if they were 90s or 160s. I'm going to say, say they're 90s. But those at full intensity, they're still super pink, you know, mm -hmm. still kind of pastel-y. And pink compared to super daylight. It's not like this overpowering pink color, like if you had actual pink tuned in. Yeah. Um, but just seeing a reef tank that wasn't like fluorescent in your face but also really made you stop and look here's the thing that really grabbed me about it it's a super easy aquascape to do you're talking about getting you know fresh rocks of daisies green stars zoanthid some flower pots some alveopora a couple you know nice uh toadstools in the mix you're done. Done, yeah. You're done, done. No one's fighting for those corals at all. Those are corals like you can set up on a dime. And I think that is reflecting how they are as like freshwater aquascapers. Because, you know, in, a, in our reef world, we, you know, we grow out our own stuff and it might take years, right? But they have like a thousand maintenance accounts and they don't have years to make their customers happy. They have to put something together. You know, now it's like, all right, what palette of colors do I have to work with? And it was just, man, it just, it really jolted something in me how beautiful this aquascape was. And it's making me like kind of relook at my tanks. I'm like, oh man, I think there's a lot more aquascapeology I can incorporate and not worry so much about like flawless, you know, crazy contrasting colors and shapes. That well, was cool. also so with I'm, the planted guys or, I, and I would imagine the ADG guys take this approach. You're also looking at it like your, your end goal sort of determines your, like, especially in freshwater planted, like your plant choice, right? Like what mm -hmm. you're trying to accomplish, what kind of theme or whatever. So you're like, oh, you know, and like, I've seen them draw it out, right? Like I'm going to put, 
uh, this foreground plant here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put there. Like, I don't ever see that. I don't see somebody. I, I see them put like a month into their live rock or sorry, dead rock aquascape, right? And they'll be in the mm -hmm. garage gluing it together like I did. Like, and they'll yep. create their negative, negative space aquascape. And then collectoritis shows up and they just buy whatever they can and just load it up versus thinking, okay, over here, I'm going to have a nice alveopora and over here, I'm going to isolate maybe some zoanthids and I'm, and, and, you know, they're not thinking out like, this is my end goal. Uh, we, we don't, I mean, I'm guilty too, right? I get, I see a cool coral, but, but eventually it doesn't matter anymore. It's just a conglomeration of random corals and mm -hmm. there wasn't really uh, an end goal. Um, and I, I think if people went into it with that approach, I wonder if we'd see certain corals that people avoid kind of come back into favor, right? Because green star polyp is an actually a really cool coral if you're thinking about it as a tool for aquascaping, right? Well, there's there's um, Pachyclavularia and Briarium as far as star polyps go. You got daisy polyps, then you have pipe organs. So there's like four different very distinct corals that are really similar, also super cheap. No one's fighting for them. There was not one crazy fluorescent coral in there. The scalemia he had kind of a little bit off center. It was kind of four bombings. Like I said, I'm going to be working on the video in the next week or two. Um, if that thing had been fluorescent, the tank would have broke. Yeah, the aquascape <laughs> would have been broken. I mean, it wasn't even neon green. It yeah. was brown with a few pistachio splashes. And I'm just like, I, I'm kind of like, I kind of want the aquascapers to dip into the reef world because they would just do it so differently and they would popularize a lot of corals that are getting zero airtime right now so you, you what was the term used come to the dark side <laughs> last time we <laughs> talked <laughs> that's what they say although it's a lot brighter but yeah no yeah we need you know that's one thing i want to see more of you know we're going to talk about different reef keeping methods with giant double air quotes um, because yeah, I think you'll find a very reef therapy conclusion when we wrap it all up. But um, speaking of crazy colored corals, I just want to give a little rant to the show that I went out to. It was really disappointing because this club, this, this event was put on by a club, not really disappointed, but one part of it just kind of, just wasn't there so you know I, I think i complained recently about like aquashella totally blacking out like basically turning off the overhead lights in the saltwater section to try and make the corals more poppy like first of all if your corals are happy and healthy and you already have blue lights and you're already wearing orange glasses over your tank, um, there's not that much more contrast than saturation you can get and if vendors are really don't want any light coming down and spilling and just diluting any of the, you know, radioactive fluorescence, they can set up a tent. Or if you want to do a little cheaper, I saw a dude at um, Reef Palooza earlier this year, man, he mounted a straight up umbrella to his lighting fixture. That, that venue was actually kind of bright if you didn't have like bright, strong blue lights. So he mounted an umbrella to his lights to make just a nice little shade over it. Mm -hmm. But, because the room was so black at reef currents, I couldn't talk or see the person across the table from me. I couldn't see my friend standing next to me. It killed the community part. Mm. I thought f these frag swaps, 
and events, especially put on by a club, it was to talk to people and, and, and commune with folks and socialize, socialize, talk reef, you know, but it's like, man, that's the part that really kills me. And I'm just going to put it out there now. You're going to get some, some two-star reviews from you in the future if you black out the space around the coral vendors. Because, like, I want to see the face of the person who's selling the coral. Like, let's have that socializing. Let's be friendly. Hey, what's your name? You're not even going to ask them their name if you can't see their face. Because the blue light is so bright. And, you're, you know, you, all you can see is the coral. It's like, it's just gone a little too far. And homies need to, you know, bring that back in for future shows. Like, dim the lights. Or put it on the vendors to shade out their own tanks if they're just so committed to only the fluorescence of corals and not the inherent beauty of the coral frag, colony, or species. I mean, I've, I've, I feel think I've harped on Windex tanks and stuff before, but I don't get the obsession with how much the coral glows in the dark, you know, like glows under the blue light. Like, I think it's a cool. Um, it's side effect. one part, right? That was With like you know mo- back in the daylight where you had your halides ten k's, and then you had your actinics come on. You know, like left on a little bit longer at night. You were like, oh, that's kind of neat. You know, like that's yeah, yeah, exactly. But now it's all about just that. You know, just uh, blued out, blued out, blued out. I mean, there's there's something we said for it, but that's not all of it. And seeing this one room at Reef Currents that was completely blacked out to the point where. I mean, I was just losing my vision how blue and bright these corals were and just missed opportunities to actually discuss reefing with people who keep reef tanks. I didn't even want to ask them, like, oh, what kind of lights do you keep this on? How does it grow for you? Where did it come from? Yada, yada, yada. I just wanted to just make quick rounds and kind of get back to a normal setting. (laughs) But I feel so much better just getting it out there. That's why this is reef therapy. And, uh, yeah, whew, feel better. <laughs> so I saw two extremes on one end. I saw the totally blacked out coral vending room where you couldn't see the person, your friends standing next to you. You couldn't recognize them. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I went to aquarium design group and saw a, a tank that really moved me. So, yeah. so you're saying my next, uh, conference I'm going to go to is going to feel like a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> it's all blacked out with black I'm, lights. I'm and... not saying it's all or nothing, yo. It's not yeah. all or nothing. You know, like if the vendor is really adamant, put it on them. Yeah. Right? The the, the venue doesn't provide the lighting for the corals. Why should it provide the shade for the lighting for the corals? True. Just, yeah. You know, put up your own tent if you got a bunch of tanks. Go grab yourself a freaking three dollar umbrella for the dollar store to prop over your tank to shade it out from the overhead lights and we can still have a good social experience and actually talk about reef tanks like me and mark are about to do super hard let's do it did you see the um the the coral grafting video i did i did yeah how fun was that yeah i like the creativity in that it's so funny. People are comparing it to like a coral dying and like regrowing on its own skeleton. I'm just like, well, you know, we kind of been doing that for like a really, 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 really no wait since the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And this is something I've planned out and then thought about for a long time. And I put it together. I'm like, wow, that turned out really good. I essentially turned one coral into two kind of hacking the growth rate. And it's not sitting on just like some flat bases. And I'm like, oh man, that, that coral's super cool. 
So yeah, I have some more in the in the works, but I'm going to be grafting live to live to just kind of reset certain coral colonies. So today I actually fragged out a ton of red dragon. Basically, I bushwhacked the entire freaking colony. And I'm just going to put two like real nice bushy uh, branch tips back, you know, because, you know, Acropora cardius grows so fast. You've grown it before, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would have to say the, um, I, I hate to call it Japanese because I don't even know if it comes from Jap Japan. Well, so the, the Koji, um, I'll just call it a Nephthia for now. I still don't know what it really is, but, um, the Koji Nephthia, the green, um, essentially the green Kenya tree or green Capnella, and then the red dragon acros were probably in the last, let's say, 10 years, the three corals that made me go, holy crap, there are still really cool new corals that are super easy, right? Fairly easy that are different, right? Like there's still stuff out there, you know, for that, that can just become a staple. Like the red dragon is to me was, again, maybe other experiences are different, but it was like a green slimer. I mean, it just grew, you hacked it down. It was very easy to distribute. It was a fast very. grower. But it was different. It was cool. It was a different, you know, the color, the shape. It's the pinkest, fastest grow. I mean, I'll put it out there. It's the fastest growing acro there is. Yeah. Just yeah. Bard's plain and simple. Like, it'll grow okay in low light. It'll look decent in medium light. It will develop blue tips in bright light. But I'm going to go on record right now. Stop calling it the Tyree Red Dragon because I don't think he's ever seen a coral in the wild. That coral was discovered by Vincent Chalice at Bali Aquarium and, you know, maricultured and then distributed yeah. all over the world. It doesn't matter if you have the, the, the exact strain because they're still, well, I don't know if they're shipping them now because everybody just wants tenuous. Um, but yeah, Red Dragon, oh my God, I, I made so much of it. I just called up on my friends. I'm like, I don't want all of this. Please take it off my hands. <laughs> Let's trade for some stuff or just take it now and we'll, you know, I'll get something back later. Um, but yeah, super fun, uh, doing those series of videos, actually getting some, tr some trimming and pruning on my flagship reef tank. That's a lot of acros, but man, the challenge with acros when you're trying to create an aquascape is they just all grow out of proportion, like way, you know, the one's going to grow super fast and another one's going to grow super slow. So it's been, oh my God, it's probably been a year in the works to finally get some good grooming done, but I don't want to do it all at once. Cause I don't want like a whole bunch of exposed coral tissue all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do it in three, four, five stages. My life wasn't, my reef life wasn't that exciting today. I trapped and removed my large flame angel, my whole, like I'll have a harem of flame angels. Uh, <laughs> I got tired. I mean, you know, the last thing you want to do is sit with a beer in front of your reef tank and stress out about just one fish being a total jerk. And this like so I, I said, during the day, he would just beat the ever-living crap out of the female flame. And yes, maybe I should have had more to distribute the aggression like a true harem, but uh, I tried that and unfortunately I lost the other one during quarantine. But um, And then at night, he would woo her and like want to mate with her and I just couldn't stand it anymore. I was like, you got to go, man. This is an abusive relationship. I don't relationship. like seeing any aggression in my fish tank or reef tank, even if it's natural. Like, I want to see peace and tranquility. Agreed. Yeah. So, I, was, I finally, 
And he was getting a little mean towards my uh, Regal, who I got from TSM, which was actually smaller than the Flame. Um, so I was like, you know, I, so I put my, him in my uh, coral quarantine tank for now. How did you trap him? I got one of those acrylic boxes. It looks like an acclimation box, but it uh, has a trap door with a little fishing string where you just pull, pull and it pulls is it, is the Is the door out. kind of at an angle? I have that one. That was like the uh, aquamedic. aquamedic one, but that one had a heavy glass plate and sunk to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So this one just hooks onto the tank uh, uh, like an acclimation box from, you know, picture. Yeah, I still use my uh, aquamedic and I use some very strong magnets to pin it wherever I want. Yeah. And man, it's crazy. Like you have any problems with, with tanks, just feed in there. Sometimes, I mean, you're talking about a few hours. If you have well acclimated fish, a few hours they go in there, you pull the string, door drops down, you're done. <laughs> the fish yeah. is, you don't even have to like net it out. You just grab the whole container and just go put that in a different tank. That's what I do. Races. Yeah. yeah. And you always end up catching a few fish, you know, so then it's, I, I dump it in a bucket and put the ones that weren't the problem back in. But um, yeah, that wasn't too bad. And then, yeah, I uh, I bought a new skimmer, but I'm not going to install it till I'm back from vacation. So we'll Okay. See. I think we can, we can talk about that when you come back for vacation. And so yeah. I, mean, I think I have, a, a, uh, I already have uh, some filler or a stand-in special session of reef therapy for next week so we won't have any interruption and you'll get to listen to it because that'd be cool. yeah that'll be fun yeah i'll be All i'll right. be swimming on a real reef and then i'll go back and listen to you guys talk about reef keeping so you going to hawaii yes sir well assuming both my kids test negative because they've got really strict oh. strict requirements for entry for anyone that's not unvaccinated and of course my kids are too young to get vaccinated so. right so, wait so on what, those what do you plan to do when you're in Hawaii? So, I Googled and looked up the best hotel for easy snorkeling, and that's where we're mm-hmm. staying. So, we can just do that. Um, and then I booked a snorkel tour, you know, a kid-friendly one. Like, there were some more cool adventurous diving I could have done, but it's a family trip. I got the little ones with me, and I'm trying to get them into the reef and snorkeling. So, I'd rather do, like, the kid-friendly cattle boat that feeds, you know, cinnamon buns in the morning while you're going out to the <laughs> reef and hot chocolate and just get them stoked on it. So we're going to do a snorkeling tour. And then I've got a car rented and I've got all these places on the island that I want to hit and snorkel. What and I mean, I know the coral cover is not great there and it's very homogenous, but I'm still excited. I would say the coral cover is great, but there's four species. That's what I mean, right? yeah. Parides, Poslopora, Montipora capitata with... Lobactus scutaria, disc corals, fungias, actual fungios. I, I always love seeing fungias in the wild. Um, now, I heard they had some setbacks with bleaching and stuff, I think, in 2014, 15, but I don't know. We'll see. The reefs? Yeah. Uh, what about the Waikiki Aquarium? Uh, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be on Maui. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. But yeah, no, I wanted I, to go see the Waikiki Aquarium, and I also wanted to go to the Bishop Museum. The deep reef exhibit freaking personatus angelfish yes. and, and peppermints. I don't know what they still all have, but oh my goodness, that'd be so awesome. That and the Bishop Museum would have been cool, but I am going to go to the Maui Ocean Center, you know, check that out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just looking forward to it. Yeah, little cool. Well, R&R. when we're done with this, I'm going to send you a few contacts, and uh, you know, maybe you can uh, connect with some uh, some movers and shakers out in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> cool. So we have a fun, important 
conversation to jump into. You want to uh, introduce it? Yeah. So reefkeeping methods, which some of them are well-known. Some of them I'd say were maybe short-lived or kind of on the periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they all deserve their their moment of discussion or moment in the sun, you know? Um, and, and if you don't know what all of them are, that's fine too. We'll try to describe them to our best of our abilities. Um, but they all... I know it's interesting because a lot of times they're variations of each other too, right? And then, mm-hmm. like you said, at the end, it, in the end, they're all kind of, kind of, yeah. All right. Oh, so let me t- let's talk about one that is virtually unknown and mm. is not on our list, okay. and we only came to learn about well after the reef aquarium hobby was thoroughly established. You talking about leaching? I'm talking about leaching. Yeah. Eng. Yeah. So I don't remember all the details, but this guy was Indonesian. Yeah. Um, I know he had access to fresh corals and seawater. I think uh, we're talking late 60s. Does that sound right? I want to say 70s, but yeah, I mean. Okay. Which before yeah, most yeah. of us. And. He had his own method. I, I mean, if he had if he had written the books in in English or any books, oh my God, he would be the just godfather of godfathers of reef keeping. So this guy, he took live rock, mm-hmm. um, natural live rock straight from the ocean, put it in a tank with fresh collected corals. I don't remember how he lit them up. Probably diffused natural lighting, I would assume. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I know there was no real power heads available to him. And so he would use airlifts mm-hmm. and air stones. And if I recall, he would even try to do some tricky stuff with his rocks where if a bubble kind of built up in under a rock a- as it got too big, it wouldn't move the rock like a bubbler toy, but it would just kind of spout out in a little bit of a random or periodic nature. Do you remember mm-hmm. reading anything about that? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this guy, oh my goodness, ahead of his time is like not even, is not even giving him enough credit. Um, You see some picture of his tanks from the 70s and you're like, what? (laughs) How is that even possible? It does look like, you know, freshly harvested stuff, not crazy grown out. But early days, we were just trying to figure out how to keep this stuff alive overnight, let alone for a week or a month. Well, you think about, um, because for a while there, corals were considered impossible but you know these very sterile fish only systems had we read about him or had people in the 80s uh, read about him or early 80s and approached fish only is more like how we now term fish only with live rock right mm-hmm. the success rate probably would have been a whole different ball game right i mean oh, we, yeah. were, we were throwing pennies not we, we were too young but they were throwing pennies in <laughs> tanks for like the the minute copper dosing and um, yeah, I don't know. It just, it makes you wonder, like you said, if, if his knowledge or his, his publication was more distributed, translated and available, like would people think, cause even I think about if you were living in New York, Carolina coast, even if you just got some semi temperate rocks out of the ocean and put yeah. them in your fish only system, it'd be a game changer bacteria diversity wise and everything. I mean, yeah. So before reef aquariums were even enough of a thing to put a label on it, you had this 
be this crazy pioneer trying to apply some of the natural balance to a saltwater aquarium with corals and invertebrates, very similar to how the freshwater old timers were doing it. You know, mm -hmm. they didn't have a, access to a lot of filtration, but they would use, you know, try to balance out the plants and the snails and the lighting and the number of fish in the aquarium. Um, really let it season and mature. Um, they didn't keep giant fish, you know, because those guys are so dirty. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it was really parallel and then, and then everything got worse. Yeah. <laughs> everything was all like, all right, we got to, we don't know how to keep these clean. So let's just try to keep them as sterile as possible. Yeah, they were. It's not what we're, yeah, just, well, uh, let's see, like inline canister modules, lifeguard style with crushed coral, sometimes with gravel filters and probably, you know, just instant ocean salt or salt that was just like barely good enough to keep the fish alive, not good enough to keep them colored, let alone stop head and ladder line erosion with, you know, dead coral skeletons. And, oh, that's not well, what we're talking about. Because <laughs> you talk about what, uh, and I don't want to jump the gun, but, you, you you know, we were talking dates around like the Berlin Method in one of our last talks. And I'm always shocked at, you know, that being something in the late 80s because, um, and this goes back to not having the internet and just the global distribution of information at your fingertips. My pet shops that I walked into, mm -hmm. it was, there was none of that. It was dead coral skeletons, under gravel filters and wet dries, crushed coral, you know, bleach your dead coral skeletons, put them back in the tank. It was just white sterile tanks everywhere. <laughs> That's all there was. Uh, and like, you, yeah, I remember the lifeguard filters. I remember um, they were like, what were the slightly larger canister filters? The ones that were like 12 inches The, the lifeguards were, were tall. Tall and narrow. You can, you, can, you can get them in different lengths or heights for your heater, your UV, your mechanical, maybe a little biological. And you had an inline pump that you just connected everything as. Um, the other one was... Uh, Oh my goodness, I forget what they're called. I think Red Sea bought them out, but they were big fat yeah, squat big canisters. Fatties. Yeah. Um, same idea, but you know, just just loud and again, that's not super focus of what we're talking about. I love how no. we're talking about I have I'm looking at our list. Okay. So this is not in perfect um chronological order so don't add we're us. gonna miss some too i'm sure i'm, I'm sure we're gonna somebody yeah, bringing i don't that know if we're yet. gonna miss any of the important ones honestly <laughs> well, <laughs> we have a pretty good memory um but it won't be in perfect chronological or order and back then and to this day there's a lot of elbow room between different types of tanks so last was it last session or this one before that we talked about different types of tanks mm -hmm. this is different types of tank methods you know so you got fish aquariums reefs nanos seahorse tanks macroalgae tanks we're not discussing these methods as applied to all of those really we're just talking about keeping corals alive and growing in what we would classically call a reef aquarium mm -hmm. that's all right yeah all right. I, that's what i was going to actually interject with is that from a method of keeping a reef tank really is where these were popularized Back then, it might have just been called an invertebrate aquarium. Yeah. 
All right. Well, um, I think we have a good one for for kicking off the list of different methods of how to reef. Uh, I think it's a good one for you, Mark. Which one do you want to start with? Uh, top of the list. Top of the list. The wet dry? Yeah. Yeah. Wet, I used dry, to think those were so cool, filter. by the way. As a kid. Dude, inherently, they are cool. You're making yeah. it rain on some biomedia. Yeah. You know, you got this tray where you can get your pre-filter pad in there. You know, people got a little tricky with it later with their... Uh, Spinners. Um, they're spinning. It's yeah, spinners. Oh man, those toys were so much fun. Yeah. Ah man, I would. This is a good time to have someone like Sprung or Fenner to tell us the exact nuances of how the stuff is introduced. Because I believe it was like a couple articles or a series of articles in Fama that just set the saltwater aquarium world on fire. With was it the Dupla, the Dupla method? I don't know. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how wet dries became a thing because when I got really into it, wet dries were already a thing. Yeah. Um, I do believe it was a series of articles and it was Dupla from Germany, now way better known for plant stuff, um, that had Dupla wet dry trickle filters. I'm not sure if those words were were combined back in the day we had wet dry trickle we're talking about the same thing we're talking about making it rain on some kind of shapes you know bio mm-hmm. balls i god i remember when i first got into it it was just like who could come up with the most creative form of wet dry biological filtration and there was bio bale there was obviously yeah, bio was balls cpr bio had bale. a lot of the bio bale stuff yeah, creative plastic research just basically just shredded strips of well, strips of plastic. It wasn't just like shredded confetti, but it yeah. just, you know held itself up. Um, uh, film used up film for photography. You know that stuff is used up, exposed, whatever. Then you can just kind of shove that into a spot. Um, my favorite one was Army Men plastic army men i read about it once and i saw it like a couple times where somebody just threw a bunch of army men in their into their wet dry chamber and uh i just thought that was so fun and creative and cool but it really introduced the concept of a sump of an underneath the aquarium filter as a primary source of you know filtration activity there was one exception. Do you remember those tanks where the water would flow out the back, of the overflow of the back of the yes. tank, and there were trays of crushed coral it would drip through on the back uh, wall of the tank? It was, was like, like built like, into the er- tank. Are you talking about early all-in-ones before they were all-in-ones? Pretty much, yeah. I think yeah, right. pretty much. They All-in-one wasn't like, that's not what we called them back then. But yeah, there's that. And then there's the overhead. Yeah, the overhead yeah. filters. Those are, I think, those were mainly an Asian phenomenon. I was about to say, I always saw those on arowana tanks. You still do. Yeah, in freshwater, <laughs> you still have these these you know narrow chambers that rest over the tank. The water pumps up and then just flows down back into the tank. You can have the media wet. You can have it you know submerged. Um, but for the reef aquarium hobby, the wet dry trickle filter underneath the tank really god that was such a huge moment in, in uh, aquarium keeping in general just the idea of having the water flow down to a processing area 
and then be pumped back into the tank. And then within that process area, you could put your auto top off with a float valve because gravity is better than your machine. <laughs> and you could put your heater down there. You could put your, your media reactors down there, your foam fractionator down there, um, your denitrator down there. You could put all the things down there and all you would have is a drain and a return on your tank. Keep everything nice and pretty. But the only, you know, you'll recall this when even when wet dries fell out of favor and people started thinking about just other methods, the only sumps you could really get for the most part were wet dry sumps that you just rehabbed. I mean, unless you used a fish tank, right? Like unless you grabbed a fish tank and said, this will be my sump now. Um, off the shelf sumps were all wet dries. Like you would just pull mm -hmm. all the crap out and uh, basically just reconfigure it, you know, and that was like the start of like the DIY for me was like my first sump was an old a miracle wet dry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, fun fact, first uh, bio balls ever made in America were here in Colorado by a miracle. Really? Yeah. I didn't know a miracle was a Mark Colorado company. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what a there were the the company was you know yeah. corporatized, but uh, I just know that the bioballs were molded here somewhere, <laughs> somewhere yeah. here. Um, yeah, so the wet dry trickle filter and their their spinoffs, man, they they just really kicked things off in terms of how to process you know aquarium water in more thoughtful ways. But what was the problem with the wet dry trickle filter as we saw it? Nitrate factory, right? They at that worked time. too good. They yeah. worked too well. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, well, denitrifying bacteria are a different story, but nitrifying bacteria, in a way, their limiting resource is is um, oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, saturating them with oxygen by not having them fully submerged, but just kind of soaked, right? Just... Uh, it really, I guess, hypercharged the nitrification process. So every little piece of ammonia was just scavenged into um, nitrite and nitrate. Um, and so, you know, back then the enemy was nitrate, right, for mm -hmm. saltwater. Um, freshwater fish were less concerned with nitrates, but, you know, we the common knowledge that was shared at fish stores was like, you know, marine fish are more sensitive to nitrates. Um, that was one thing. Um, but yeah, and, and so you're not letting the, the organisms have opportunities, uh, to, to that resource, right? To that, to, to um, process the raw organics before yeah. it turned into a form that was more difficult to export. I mean, this is where all the nutrient export discussion originated, Man, we're yeah. 40 minutes in and we just now starting on wet dry. This is going to be a good, chunky conversation. <laughs> I'm excited, man. I'm really excited about like drilling down into all of these because I think our final conclusion is going to be a very typical reef therapy-esque uh, finale. So there was a lot of permutations of the wet dry trickle filter, um, you know, as a as a system, maybe not as a method, you know, then people start getting a little tricky with it as far as like having your water go through the, the protein skimmer, um, before it hit the wet dry, you know, I think that that helped a little bit. 
Um, but those skimmers back then, oh my goodness, they were just, they were just, there was just, it was like if you took a straw and just blew into an air stone, that's about <laughs> how much air most of them produced. Yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, there was, um, a uh, assortment of techniques that that kind of arose right next to that, probably in um, response to these higher nitrates. It's like, oh, how do we deal with these higher nitrates? And this is a more biological approach um, in no particular order. You know, we're talking about um, probably phytoremediation. And if, this was not exclusive to someone but a few different versions sprung up. You know, we had um, uh, algae scrubbers, mm -hmm. um, different takes on that with um, like the algae wheel that you mentioned uh, last week. Yeah, after the eco we finished. wheel. What was that? The eco wheel. So yeah. this was like a bio wheel, but it actually grew algae on it. Yeah, it was actually uh, a brilliant design because the thing about turf algae is, again, if you think about like the common waterfall algae scrubbers today, the algae that we were chasing and that was again you could question whether we should be still running down that that road but uh walter 80 with the the algae turf scrubber really popularized the idea of growing turf algaes which are algaes that grow in an intertidal area so they're exposed to air and water and again plants that are fully submerged are limited by the no the amount of carbon dioxide that's available in the water right plants that are adapted to grow in an intertidal zone are able to use the carbon dioxide that's also in the air. So they're less limited, right? They're less carbon limited. So, so AD really pushed, you need to grow turf algae, which is why his turf scrubbers were dump buckets, right? So they fill up. Mm -hmm. And then after a certain weight was achieved, this, it was seesaw and dump out the algae exposed to air. The eco wheel was essentially like if anybody's ever had a bio wheel, power filter um sink, which is really just a wet dry nitrification right you're exposing the bacteria to air um the eco wheel was like a bio wheel but it grew algae then there was mm -hmm. the um the ebb and flow that came out which was yeah. a seesaw also dump bucket Dana two opposing dump at the, yeah at the aquatic wildlife company in Tennessee. I don't think I don't know if it was Nashville, but yeah, no, that it was one, in Cleveland, Tennessee. Okay, Cleveland. Yeah, okay, sure. Thanks, thanks for that, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> I went Cleveland there. I went. I Cleveland in it. another state. Um, but what's interesting? So you know, I remember Walter Hady, and what was his book? Uh, Dynamic Aquaria, and there was a lot to his method. I mean, he was against impeller pumps because the impact on oh my goodness. I so forgot he, all of that. The Archimedes chestnut. screw pump. Remember those things? Oh my God. Preserve the plankton. We don't want to yep. blend up the copepods. <laughs> but he was That's also, I think, and this will bug you, but this is, I think, why we call it what we call it. He is the one that introduced the refugium. But his concept was a, actually a refugium, right? It was, yes, oh, you can- I love refugiums. Yeah. I love the idea of actual- refugium yeah as you know outlined by walter addy for sure yeah. i love that idea except for the part that every corner of your reef tank and your sump becomes a refugium whether or not you want it to 
True. Yeah. And his, I mean, his refugiums were always depicted with Calerpa and stuff, but his insistence was this is not your algae filter, right? The dump bucket is your algae, mm-hmm. your turf scrubber, yeah. your algae filter. And I, I mean, I could go on and on about that method. It's, he's ever a lot of a little bit more about it. it. I want to hear more, a little bit more about it because like I, I didn't have the book like you. I remember reading yeah. the articles and the references. I mean, it was, he had a huge impact on biology and preserving plankton and using algae to, to clean the water. And I remember these, these dedicated refugia that mm-hmm. were just basically a chamber inside the aquarium yeah. with some rubble and usually some camel or peppermint shrimp. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know camel shrimp, they're also known as humpback shrimp, and we don't really keep them because they love to eat shrooms, um, great animal otherwise. But you'd keep them in this enclosure by themselves so as they spawn produced offspring that would just go out into the tank and hypothetically feed your corals. Wow. And, you know, when you put all those pieces together, the algae scrubbing, the plankton preservation, the turf scrubbing, Oh man, that guy, that guy made his mark, even though no one knows his name anymore. I do. Uh, no, but he, um, his method, I mean, some notable public institutions tried to adopt his strict method, right? Like by the book and they had their share of problems. And I think, I think that kind of ran the whole dynamic Aquaria and 80 through the not through the mud, but there. Then people had a lot of issues with it compared to other methods, right? That we're about to get into. But I, it's one of those don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like he for sure. His flaw was his insistence on like these strict guidelines, right? Like you had to rinse your turf algae with fresh water to rinse out all the amphipods because they are compete. They're eating the turfs, and that's bad because they're reintroducing those nutrients. And it's like really. So there were some hardcore things that I think kind of killed it, but you got to give him credit, like, because, you know, I think a lot of things that are now just mainstays in the aquarium sort of originated out of that concept or out of his ideas. He would be, is he, is he still alive? I was looking it up the other day. Like, I don't think he's passed, but he's got to be up there in age. Um, I know he was, uh, sailing a boat or something for a while but but mm, just, he had such a quick a, search that's the other thing that killed it was he was so strict about the patent that the only people that were allowed to make his dump bucket design was uh, inland aquatics and then eventually that relationship i think fell out of favor too but um and maybe the ebb and flow maybe uh maybe dana riddle had 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 some ability to do it but well that was kind of a workaround but yeah it's it's all right so here's here's the interesting guff his militant approach to package all of this was basically the the first spawn of methodizing yeah an aquarium technique yeah so in a way he created the first kind of method and the idea of having methods for doing this stuff, but because he was also so militant, oh, like, you have to do it this way and you have to license the patent, that it also held it back. Well, and so he, he only had all- let one or two people do it. So it's like, even if he just did, if CPR, who was a big acrylic manufacturer back in those days, it was like, hey, you guys can build it. I just want a small royalty of like a couple of bucks or whatever, you know, whatever. 
I think it would have popularized it a lot more and it yeah. would have been more mainstream and he still would have, you know, had his nice little sailboat money or whatever he did with his money. Yeah. No, it's funny how those two things go hand in hand. At one time, you're a super creative genius and you put together all these very different components into a method, but then you're also super militant about not letting other people use it. Um, so that company is like in, um, aquatic wildlife company had to kind of work it around like hey man <laughs> you don't own algae growth like let's get real but man yeah. that guy would be rolling i don't again i don't think he's we're not sure where he's at he's getting up in years but he would not be thrilled with people confounding refugia and algae turf scrubber considering he came up with both a separate concept right and I'd love to, I mean, if anybody knows what's How going on How annoyed would them, you be? Because <laughs> I, I, maybe we're getting some of his facts wrong, right? And I, I don't want to speak I ill. I But, I mean, 21 years ago at Magna 2000, he was uh, talking about the fact that, you know, if you just exclude herbivores from a section of reef, it gets overrun with algae and all the coral gets choked out. 21 years ago, he was basically telling you not to worry so much about your phosphates and nitrates and focus on herbivory right like that's now is a great time to interject that his aquariums didn't have that many corals true he had a lot of lagoonal species like not even soft corals we're talking bubble corals elegance zoanthids shrooms and but back then, the focus wasn't just like laser guided just on the corals. Yeah. It was also about the starfish and the shrimp and the sea cucumbers. It was and a microcosm. I mean, yeah, that, that's what that was the, it, that was the goal was putting everything together. It wasn't just, you know, strictly, strictly coral, coral, coral growth, growth, growth. Um, but yeah, now that we talk, talk about it and say it out loud, it's like, man, that guy, that guy did some stuff. I don't want to drag really it out, but he, he had, I think, a 125-gallon tank, and he built up the reef right in the middle, and he had the dump bucket from the turf scrubber hit it from one end, and that was supposed to be like the reef crest. And then, of course, that wave action hits those rocks and disperses. And then on the other side of the rock pile, he just had like seagrass growing and had like a little lagoon. And, I was, and mm -hmm. the kid in me was like, that's so freaking cool. Like he's created two reef zones. In a, in a tank, you know? So anyway. Yeah. In some ways overthinking it, but yeah, that, yeah that's the first truly saltwater uh, based uh, aquarium method um, that, I mean, it lives on in so many ways in the reef aquarium hobby today. Mm -hmm. But the next method um, was not developed as a method. You know, it was a community of guys sharing notes mm -hmm. in Germany and they came up with something that would later become called the Berlin method. Yep. And if I describe all my tanks today, I would say everything's just modified Berlin. You know, my tanks personally. Um, do you want to describe the Berlin method as you remember it? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but my interpretation back in those days, or at least when it was adopted stateside, and, and we, we joked about this because you recently shared, or you recently posted some pictures on reef builders that showed some of the original Berlin tanks and it sort of contradicted some of the stuff that I had come to believe stateside, but um, bare bottom, that's the one mm -hmm. that was sort of contested later. I was like, look, they got sand in those tanks that we see pictures of now. 
Um, obviously, Live Rock, Protein Lots Skimmer. Of live Rock, huge um, Protein Skimmer, few fish. Few fish, and then usually Kalkwasser was their and, choice and of uh, calcium and alkalinity maintenance. Yep. Um, and yeah, um, they would have like these four foot Sanders airstone skimmers and stuff <laughs> with know? dedicated air pumps, just pump a ton of air in there. You know, they're, I'm, I'm sure Venturi technology was around, but it wasn't optimized for this, let alone down drafts or needle wheels. Um, but yeah, just, you know, that's, that's what put protein skimmers on the map as a really critical tool for keeping saltwater aquariums of any Good kind. Point. If, yeah. That's a really good point. Because, I mean, it was pretty much, that was, and and that was back in those FAMA articles, uh, that was the big debate, you know, writing into FAMA mm-hmm. was like the wet, dry, diehards were freaking out. And then like, well, mm-hmm. like, where's your biological filtration? And the idea that you just needed these live living stones and, uh, and a protein skimmer. That was it, you know? Yeah. So... But when I got into the hobby, every tank that I saw was described like that. This, oh, this is a Berlin-style tank. This is a Berlin-style reef tank. And, I, I mean, I could still remember uh, seeing some tanks that were exactly that. Tons of rock, very few fish, super skinny yellow tanks because they barely ever fed it, bare bottom, and just a oversized, underperforming, very loud protein skimmer. Well, and the guys that would write into FAMA asking about switching to the Berlin method, really all they were doing was pulling their wet dry out. That and was it. Maybe putting a lot more emphasis on the protein skimmer too. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, really it was like how, like, I think, uh, was it reef notes? No. What was it? What was the, I think he probably answered 30 freaking times. Somebody asking like, well, do, should I pull out one third of my bio balls and then wait a month and then pull out another? Like they were all so scared to pull their bio balls out like abruptly. And they were like, Oh, the biological, like I'll just do like a little every week. And I think I saw that question like pop up like a million times. I was like, Oh my God, I would go. How do I there. convert? But once we had, you know, the Walter Eddy method and its components and then the Berlin method, come onto the scene and the existing wet dry, then you really saw this competition and this culture oh, yeah. of how do it you became team sport. Tank. Yeah. For a little team bit. Team sport. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. You know, tribalism in the reef world. Well, how do you, how do you do it? You know, in the early days it's like, can we even do it? Can we keep this alive? Okay, sure. I still remember like a fam article from early nineties um, before I actually started where someone had like, a two month apart, you know, photo comparison of fire coral, which is not even a coral actually grown. I'm like stony grow- coral growth. Is it possible? <laughs> and you look, you know, look where we're at now complaining about how people are, <laughs> are actually growing their corals. But yeah, once, once we had a few different techniques, then the team sport of how do you reef um, became more uh, part of the fabric of reef aquarium culture. And to your point about just this diehard strict adherence to a singular methodology was bad, right? Because when the when the great debate between the 80s algae turf scrubber and the Berlin method, that was another big heated debate back in those days. Um, 
the irony was that they sort of solved each other's problems. So like the hybrid where you see today people use algae filtration in a Berlin style setup and vice versa. Um, it, it's interesting to me, right? Like like the big problem with ATS was terpenoids and the yellowing of the water, which protein skimming ATS and carbon is would have algae, algae turf scrubber. Algae turf scrubber, yeah. Um, yeah, just throw... Skimming and carbon throws. from the Berlin style team would have address that right and and uh in the berlin style they could have probably benefited from growing some algae somewhere sometimes you know not always yeah. i mean plenty of tanks don't need it but absolutely but that that strict adherence of, or opposites like they had just come together had a few beers and helped each other out like they may have come up with that hybrid solution or sooner maybe i don't know i don't know what i was gonna say <laughs> um but, oh, I was going to say that the, the Berlin guys, they didn't set out to build a method. It was the community of guys who shared notes for who knows how many years, um, just enjoying the alchemy involved in keeping these corals alive and all the animals alive and growing. Yeah. They weren't trying to build a method, um, but the, you know, the wet dry and the, um, the natural aquarium folks, they were definitely a little bit campy. And that started leading us into more of these um, reef aquarium styles being compartmentalized. Um, but I want to come back to your point at, towards the end of pulling yeah. from, from each. Um, but I think, you know, what I got super excited because right when I got in the hobby, I mean, it was just a, you know, a few months, maybe about a year after I got into, I, you know, really aquarium hobbyist, not just having fish tanks in the corner. Um, there was a C-Scope article, I believe it was written. Oh, God, I don't remember who wrote that one. Um, but it was describing the Jobert plenum, the Jobert method of having an empty of volume of water underneath your you know a kind of a thick sand bed now what people kind of failed to remember two things is this was done on a very large aquarium at the oceanographic museum in monaco it had um kind of a open airlift design like, but wasn't there also like a three percent water exchange also ah, i'm getting there i'm getting oh, okay there. sorry um, i jumped the shark but it had a slightly open airlift design so it wasn't directly drawing a ton of water through you know these airlifts to pull water through so it was just like a very gentle subtle um you know exchange of water coming through the sand bed um and you know what was lost in the translation or just in the uh the team sport of it is um, the, I don't know what, it was a gradual water change on a daily or weekly basis with the Mediterranean Ocean. Um, people forgot all about that and they just focused on this empty space. And then I still remember, man, I can still remember all the articles. I'm like, what's the best way to build a plenum? I built plenums for myself. I built plenums for people because by, by then it was my early years of like working at fish stores, talking the lingo, have my, my method of making a plenum for other people's reef tanks. You know, usually a couple pieces of PVC egg crate on top of that, then some window screening, then the right mix of medias so you don't have it going through. Oh, my goodness. We worked so hard to produce that plenum all in the hopes of, you know, having some kind of integrated nitrate removal. Yeah. And that was sort of the issue with the Berlin method for some, right, was uh, – it still left nitrates on the table. And then we started looking at, well, how do we solve that? Right. Um, and yeah, I, I, 
I built a plenum once, uh, and I had like a six inch sand bed, well, crushed coral bed because it, you know, it required that larger grain and mm-hmm. yeah, crazy. I guess I was, I was kind of attached to it because it was an early technique introduced in the early yeah. days of my aquarium career. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is what's up. And, um, it's what I knew. It's just, it's what I knew. It so had that's a why coolness I, I, to it with the Monaco Aquarium and Jobert. Mm-hmm. Like it, there was something. And I mean, the photographs of his aquariums were amazing, right? And he did have some Those were systems amazing corals. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even like a 3%, 5%, 10% weekly exchange is not huge. But yeah. I think part of, part of the technique was that the acid buildup in the plenum would naturally dissolve the calcium yeah. carbonate. Yeah. You know, there's so much more nuance to it that was just lost, you know, through the years, you know, and that's another part that people didn't really understand was the buffering capacity as the acids build up from the organics breaking down and the respiration of the microbes underneath that plenum, just naturally dissolving the media to just keep everything just a little bit more balanced. So you don't have to do so much. It wasn't supposed to be a, you know, a silver bullet panacea for every little thing, but it worked for a long time. I'm pretty sure that was one of the best, largest reef tanks in the world for, you know, at least a decade. Yeah. I I thought it was cool. Um, obviously, I mean, if you can't tell by our discussion, I was a little bit more, ro- like the way you were romanticized by that, I was romanticized mm-hmm. by 80, right? And, and yeah. ATS. So I... I didn't jump all into the uh, Jobert method, right? Um, but I did think I, I like it was kind of like a sexy new thing that I was intrigued by, and I did set up one tank briefly for a while that way, um, just to see, you know, because um, I did think it had it when back when I still thought nitrate reduction in a sand bed was necessary, which I obviously don't think anymore. I thought it was a better method than a deep sand bed. Um, Again, it, it just got so oversimplified. Yeah. The nuances of what that was trying to achieve just got lost in the noise. And it wasn't simply about removing nitrates, but it, wa- it was a very a discreet thing you did to an aquarium. If you had a plenum, you had a plenum. You were using a Jobert system. And I'm very proud to actually call um, Dr. Jean Jobert, a friend of mine. I've had dinner with him many times. And he actually collected probably one of the most widely distributed corals on planet Earth, the Milka Stylo. That's where I got my information about it, and I tracked it back to the source, and it was to him, and he told me what year he collected it. Um, not quite at the Red Sea, but at the mouth of the Red Sea in 1984, if I, if I got that right. And it's just so awesome that this guy has done so much. Um, you know, he's worked a lot with, like, nanotanks in recent years. I think, like, six or seven years ago, I shared a, a video uh, of yeah. a fishbowl or something that he yeah. had done that just – Hadn't had a water change, but it had a good mix of invertebrates. Had some and fish like zinnia in there and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool little, you know, self-contained, and um, it's just really nice. You know, he doesn't work at the Oceanographic Museum anymore, um, but man, I really got to get over to uh, Southern France and, and visit him and get a behind-the-scenes tour and uh, history lesson from this guy who had such a huge impact on the reef aquarium hobby, and spawned a lot of me too methods yeah yeah like the uh 
NNR? Was it the natural nitrate reduction method? Uh, I would say the deep sand bed uh, method. It wasn't called well, method. Geez, it was called DSB. Deep sand bed. So if you're not familiar with deep sand beds, it was like bell bottoms of reef tanks. <laughs> and that's a great analogy because <laughs> I am embarrassed that I was oh, part of the deep sand bed crew you back should in be. the day. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like being embarrassed Absolutely. about a about wearing bell bottoms as, or well, maybe you shouldn't be embarrassed about that, but I was I I drank the DSB Kool-Aid, man, in the early 2000s and you know, I had to go get my South Down sand from Home Depot, which was like cheaper than the um Carib Sea stuff and, and have let's, like let's, let's back it up for a moment because some of the DSB um, deep sand bed really came out of the very first sparks of like online reef aquarium community. Yeah, that was that was. Um, I would say the DSB took off sort of around the era where Reef Central became probably the most popular reef forum at that 1999, time. you know, really getting some legs in 2001 and then getting steam after that. But if you're not familiar with the, the DSB method, it was this harebrained idea to put six inches, correct me if I'm wrong, six inches. Mm-hmm. Not well, lytic- yeah. According to Carib C, the, the finer the grain, the less deep it had to be. So even with sugar-sized sand, technically you could get denitrification even with like an inch or so, but but people went crazy. The vast majority of folks were like, Six more inches. is better. Yeah. And when a bag of sugar-fine, oolitic aragonite cost anywhere from $35 to $40 at the local fish store, there was a company called Southdown that offered this stuff as like non-toxic, like it was play like sand. play sand for your kids' yeah. uh, sandbox. You, and and oh my god, I remember all the threads on Reef Central and Reefland and Reefs.org of someone finding South Down at their local Home Depot because it Home wasn't Depot at was every much Home Depot back then right? too. Yeah, yeah. Home Depot was was much smaller than Lowe's or even Ace Hardware back then. And it was like, oh, you get this, was it a 50-pound bag for $5? Yeah, compared and to like people, 30 bucks or whatever for a 40-pound bag. Yeah. And people went nuts. And you saw so many tanks that were like 18 inches deep and a third of that was taken up by sand. I mean, <sighs> I think, so it was Rob Tunin. Who now it lives in Hawaii and does? Oh no no no! Research. You're skipping ahead. You're skipping ahead. We got to talk about the Ron Shimek before you get to Rob Tunin. Well, but uh, I would argue Tunin was the one that really, like, through testing and everything, said, "Look, you don't need a plenum to have nitrate redu- or uh, denitrification, right? To have that anoxism." But you're right. Shimek was the one that really pushed the finer, finer, finer grain sand. Well, Whereas, push this romantic novel that all your waste is going to fall into the sand and everything that grows into the sand, uh, you know, all your amphipods, spaghetti worms, tube worms, bristle worms, they're just going to consume it all and break it down to a point that lower down the, the, the bacteria. We're just going to be able to like denitrify it because it was <clears throat> anoxic. And, um, and his his idea was that the finer the grain of sand, the higher the diversity of organisms that would be living in it, 
versus like a very coarse grain sand. And I think he just ran with that, right? It was all about getting bristle, ordering bristle worms. Yeah, we ordered I bristle love how worms the only from Inland Aquatics, by the way. The only pictures of Ron Chimmick's tank are of, of the his sand. sand bed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong, man. One time I saw this one tank that was set up with a DSB that had never been touched. And there was just like, it was like a, like a prairie dog colony in miniature with all these little spaghetti worms had, had make these perfect little mounds. It looks really cool, but I'm not here for worms. I'm here for corals and fish and macro invertebrates that I can actually see. Well, I wrote, I think when my honeymoon ended and I, I, I could see clearly, um, I actually wrote <laughs> on reef builders, something about reef keeping demagogues, right? About these people that we, religiously like worship and their mythology and we give them a sub form and then you've never seen a picture of the reef tank and i'm like well why am i following this guy right and yeah and other people have have you know said the same it's like you know if you're gonna follow somebody's advice you should probably look at the reef tank and and, and mm. see if you like his results right well my biggest problem was like if you want to plant them i mean later on when i kind of started shaking off the um star struck this um i was like why are you gonna have it you know you why is your tank a third sand you have a pet sand bed literally yeah. breathing and, and egg you know exuding co2 dropping your c8 your ph super hard why don't just put that in a in part of your sump yeah just have a remote sand bed if you really want to do it yeah yeah and that was an offshoot but a, another small offshoot was uh, natural nitrate reduction NNR Bob that humans. was clearly Bob Gomans trying to champion something and trying to create something that was already happening without him. Yeah, but yeah, so many articles in FAMA about NNR, NNR, NNR. I mean, he just kept throwing out that acronym all the time, trying to make it a thing. And by then, like, you know, Jobert and Deep Sandbeds were already kind of on the ropes. Um, with most folks, but man, it was so funny to some, see some people not read the fine print and, um, put something together like a, uh, a deep sand bed with silica sand and you yeah. just see all the blackness underneath. You saw some people doing this. They just didn't read all the details. And instead of using aragonite, they used the, the silica and it was just this black anoxic hydrogen sulfide layer down at the bottom. Well, and that was the problem with the sugar size too, is you want it to be oxygen low, but you don't want to go full hydrogen sulfide, right? And that right. was the that was the beauty of the uh, Jobert method is that I, I that I think was missed. And I mean, yeah, you could argue that the hydrogen sulfide buildup. I don't know. I mean, you heard about people stirring their stand bed and killing everything, but then I've also heard the opposite, right? So it's hard yeah. to say how much of a risk that was, but yeah. Mm -mm -mm. So then we had, um, which a good next, are you still talking about sand? Or are we talking about the no. next one? And then the next okay. one. Okay. All right. You introduce the next one. So this one was interesting, but I feel like, uh, again, this was one of those things where like we had a good idea, but, but it was like, well, I can't make money off of this good idea unless I this make you buy something. This was the, the first of many merchandised reef aquarium methods. And that was where sure. I have nothing against, I don't know the person who started it personally. I have nothing against it, but when this got popular, I'll just preface it with this being an 
a Walter 80 fanboy, but, 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 you know, I believed like it was flawed and it needs a skimmer and carbon and blah, blah, blah. What is it? Well, no, I'm not going to say it yet. There were plenty (laughs) of us doing this without. All right. So the one I'm talking about is the ecosystem method, right? Which is essentially a Calerpa scrubber, right? And there were plenty of us on the Reef Central forums and elsewhere already really digging into this, right? And we were mm-hmm. digging into solving the nitrate riddle in a Berlin system by growing Calerpa because we couldn't go buy a dump bucket because of the stupid patent crap. So we looked at, you know, That's about all the splashing and bubbles. And- well, yeah. And I ordered my very first Calerpa from the... Uh, what was it? The um, Aquatic Wildlife Center in Cleveland, Tennessee. They sent me Calerpa taxifolia all the way to Boulder, Colorado. But yeah, then the ecosystem method came out, which was essentially just a Calerpa macroalgae refugium, algae, you know, whatever. But you had to use their substrate and you had to refresh mm-hmm. their substrate on an annual basis, right? So now you've created the subscription model. You've, you've, you've come up with a way to generate revenue for something and I don't doubt. There was ecosystem doubt. mud. There yeah. was ecosystem additive. Oh my god! I would kill if anybody has a bottle of ecosystem additive. Like, please at me right now. I need it. And then there was the ecosystem like uh, garlic to add to the food. Go ahead. And I don't doubt the efficacy of the substrate because I think people were finding terrestrial leaves in it and stuff. So they determined it was like a terrestrial substrate, which is probably rich in iron and a lot of other probably minerals. Probably some iron. Probably yeah. mostly iron. <laughs> so it was great, you know, for maybe some trace elements and iron and the Calerpa loved it. And it was a, it was good for growing micro myofauna. Nothing wrong with it. Like it worked. So like I don't want to dog it. Like it actually worked. And if you want to use their substrate in your macroalgae tank, like you're not going to have a bad time. Um, but it was expensive. Holy crap was that stuff expensive for dirt. For the day. It for the day. Count. Well, it's still it expensive. Didn't... Go Google it, man. It's like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's it's actually astounding that you can still get it and that it's been like 20 years and it still has some legs and some people are still kind of swearing by it. And um, it's important to mention that this was another method that was really framed as a method. Right. Right. You you had the miracle mud. You you put that in, you know, a remote sand bed kind of area. Um I you had a twenty four seven uh macroalgae growth on top of it. That was Calerpa, uh, I would say that was a distinguisher was because uh they were pushing yeah that was not something that other people were doing and that method was some where it was like to prevent the calerpa from going sexual just light it 24 7 like that yeah, was because if, if it's lit 24 7 it will balance out some of your co2 some of your ph um i guess we even talked about ta- even talk about rdp yet you know the reverse daylight photosynthesis which had been the norm before this um of having your lights on your macroalgae section your turf scrubber opposite of your reef tank but yeah it was um just just kind of a modified algae scrubber but the mineral substrate was kind of the key and he had all these advertisements showing how he would take a Emperor um, Angel uh, with Emperor HLLE, Angel yeah. with a head, ton of lateral head line, and lateral line erosion, yeah. put it in a reef tank so using this method, and six months to a year later, it was all gone. It was it was actually quite impressive. Like, I and, still picture those images today. 
I, I mean, I liked it because it was like the closest thing to like a algae focused method around at the time. So, you know, I dug it. Um, but you know, it also, it was a method that evolved because up front, he, he highly insisted on weekly water changes, I believe, and also a bare bottom. Um, and then over I don't time, the bare bottom part. Yeah. Uh, if I recall, it was bare bottom and very frequent water changes, no protein skimmer, but then he changed his tune on protein skimming later and started to advocate a protein skimmer as well. Mm-hmm. But they um, had their own filters, their own hang on the back their own filters. Sumps. Yeah. Creative, placti- pla- creative plastic research had their own line. So he opened it up to other folks to make this thing so he could sell the mud. It was called Miracle Mud. Oh, did we even mention the Miracle Mud? This is the first time we mentioned it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was called Miracle Mud. The substrate was called Miracle Mud. You can still get it today. And it's uh, Mike Paletta. Introduced this in an article of C Scope. C Scope, yeah. But then C-scope who was again. it? Tom, uh, one of the main C Scope guys ran an experiment. He ran one with Miracle Mud and one with just lytic sand in the um, Calerpa. I'll just call it a refugium, even though that drives you crazy. Um, and he saw a really no noticeable difference. And that was also published in C Scope. But yeah, I mean, the thing that bothered me was if you calcu- if you use their, they have a little calculator that gives you guidance on how much miracle mud you should use based on your tank volume within Tom your Frakes. sump. Frakes, thank you. Yeah. But if you look at that calculator and then you add up, it's insane how much like the cost is. And that was the same when we were all doing deep sand beds, right? Like how much money we were spending on sand. Yeah, but you couldn't get a South Down equivalent or a Miracle Mud equivalent at your Home Depot. You know, there wasn't a hack yeah. to like skip the line or whatever. Yeah, you know, it, it got exponentially expensive when you did a large tank, if, especially if you're trying to use a certain amount of Miracle Mud relative to the volume of your tank. Um, but one thing that's astounding about, about it is it still has its proponents. Yeah. It's kind of, like you said, shifted with the times. Initially, it was no protein skimmer. And then later on, they realized that people just love their protein skimmers. And so they started mer- making these uh, Miracle Mud sumps um, with protein skimmer- skimmers built in. And um, I think there was a follow-up with, by Mike Paletta like 15 years later. That might have been on Reef Builders where he talked about like, hey, I've been away from it for a while. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm dabbling in it again. And... You know what? It's it's there's still something you can't put your finger on, but well, I think it's just I will a, say, a unique mix of trace element release by the Miracle Mud. I agree, and I will say with some of these like snake oil, whatever you could call it, like people after they've tried it, they come back to reality. But I know several people who have used it for years and believe in it still. So there's something uh-huh. to those trace elements or that iron or whatever it is, right? There's something to it. So that I don't want to dog it too hard because you know, I I kept tabs on several reef keepers that just still stick by it, you know? And e- yeah. they'll even like um a couple of them like have gone on to different methodologies, but they still put some miracle mud in their sump, not like with a calerpa bed, but just as a almost like a slow release trace element additive or something. Yes. So there's yeah. something to whatever he's digging up out there in California for sure. I mean, this is not a plug, but I don't think any tank would be harmed by putting one of their little trays of miracle mud in the sump in a corner where you don't see it and just let it do its um, slow release thing. 
Although it makes a mess of your tank when you first put it in. Yeah. So I, t I yeah. tried it. I tried it in a small 50-gallon uh, tank because I was just like, why are these people so gung-ho about it, right? And yeah, you definitely got to be prepared for the tea-colored water for a day or two. But mm, 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 mm. All right. So I don't know that much about the next one, but you do, so you take it away. Yeah, we can keep it short. So... The, you know, obviously when the DSB crowd went crazy, eventually you're going to have a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A push, not a pushback, but like a, a counter correction. A correction. And uh, that was like, the best I could call it is starboard reef, right? And the only reason that is, is because one of the main proponents of it, instead of going fully bare bottom, he would use starboard, which is like a... It's almost like a plastic that they use on boats and stuff to build decking. Um, he would put that on the bottom of his tank and then put his stuff on there. Um, so that doesn't sound very revolutionary, right? But the other things that, again, sort of like what you said about the Jobert method that were that get missed over time in history was um, that were, in my opinion, somewhat interesting was the flow was insane. Uh, he was a big pusher of, uh, I think that was the first time I started to take note of those um, uh, what do you call them? You use them too, where it, it takes flow from the side and amplifies Eductor. it. Yeah, like he was a big proponent of it adductors, but also very wet skimming, right? So it's almost like a partial water change type level like skimming. concentrated water change. Yep. And an like a super oversized UV to the point that the UV has like an oxidizing quality similar to ozone, right? Because a UV will produce oxidants as well. Um, so he was basically using a UV like a, like a, almost like an ozone unit. Um, so those things were interesting, but I, really the real interesting thing was that the the band of followers that joined in, to, in my opinion, and I, everyone remembers history differently, that was the start of the end of the deep sand bed, where people were like, "Screw this noise." I'm shoveling all this sand out of my tank. I'm going bare bottom. Only this time they're putting a big thing of cookie cutter board or whatever under their their what rock was the point of the starboard anyway um i think people were just worried about rocks coming crashing down and cracking the glass maybe uh it was more attractive to them to see like a white starboard bottom and it wouldn't slide around yeah. you know and it would dent in a little bit and the plastic would kind of hold it yeah and i i had a I, when I did bare bottom last in my 225, I put a cookie cutter or a cookie, um, yeah, a cutting board that mm -hmm. like locally I had cut to fit my tank on the bottom and obviously inspired by those guys, right? But part of it was just um, I knew I was going to stack really high rocks and I just kind of liked the way that looked. So I did it. Um, but I, I, you know, I didn't go oversized UV, wet skimming and all that crazy stuff, but. And so I, to me, I, I give it some, some credit because it, those guys and, and their fervent nature, like really that was the online tribalism, tribalism, sport. yeah, yeah it was like, you sure. know, 40 page debates and, you know, people would get banned and, but it was really the end of the deep sand bed in my opinion. Nice. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Yeah. We ready for the next one? Yeah. I'll let you do that one. Um, so the best, the next biggest technique was undoubtedly Zeovit. Yeah. This is probably mid 2000s to the later 2000s. 
And at first, it just, we were still using very white light. No, still LEDs are not a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, actually, maybe early 2000s. And uh, the whole idea there was to have almost bleachy corals have incredibly low nutrients. And the corals were somehow feeding from bacteria instead of their zooxanthellae. So they basically had almost no brown color to them at all. And they looked really pastel. This is a um, kind of came around similar timing as T5 lamps, mm-hmm. where you could just blanket the tank with light and kind of fine tune the color um, and bring out those pastel colors. It was still very daylight. And these corals, did they just looked unreal, but they also didn't look fleshy. Yeah. They looked really skinny. You know, it's, very skinny tissue on the skeleton, incredible pastelli colors, and um, but they looked where they was sickly to me, right? Like almost like a bleached reef right before mm-hmm. all the colors lost. Like if you've seen a one that bleached and they're still they still have their pigments, you know. Um, and and I'm not saying that's what all Zeovit was about, but uh, I just remember seeing some of those Euro tanks and being like, oh, that looks weird. But just like the um, the black box of Miracle Mud, where you don't know what it was doing, um, the founder of Zeovit was notoriously secretive about Thomas what was Cole. actually going on. Another Tom. Yeah. And um, uh, one of the main uh, – it was really like a Berlin-style method, but you use this Zeovit reactor that used zeolites – um, with water flowing through it, so like a meteor reactor with zeolites, and you were supposed to agitate them once a day to like kick up the mulm off of it. I don't know how much of that yeah. was um, actually feeding the corals versus just dislodging the particles for your protein skimmer to export. Well, it was, then- it was bacterial mulm, right? It was sort of like it was a method that circled around somewhat you could call carbon dosing, but using the whole we're going to grow bacteria and then we're going to skim them out and that's how we export our phosphates and nitrogenous compounds but the bacterial particles were all supposed so supposed to act as a food yes. for the corals but they had such tiny polyps like i never saw a shaggy pastelli looking coral but then you added like this whole giant line of of trace elements oh man they had um, so many added daily by drops yeah. and it came in these fancy blue bottles and you you think miracle mode is expensive oh my goodness man zeovit just like took that whole idea to a, a very high d- new level and i mean correct me if i'm wrong but zeolites are not really effective at removing ammonia and salt water right it's a freshwater thing so really it was just a medium for bacteria to grow and grow that bacterial mulm and then you shook it you get a little handle and you go up and down with it and that would disrupt all that mulm and then either, like you said, feed your corals or you skim it out. And that was sort of the root of it all. Um, it was, I'll it, tell which, you what, though. Those those pictures that came out of Europe before yeah. it was widespread in America, they made you rethink what your t- reef tank was supposed to look like. Those colors on everything, especially like the shallow water tenuous, uh, sorry, shallow yeah. water humulus, just looking like crazy colorful like it showed in in really shallow light but it was missing a little bit of depth like that flesh on the corals that uh we come to love and 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 expect nowadays um was absolutely gone there and it was just like just a never-ending parade of you know 
Zeo back and Zeo start and Zeo add another word to it and you put your drops in there and pulls coral vitalizer and just all these little things that just they didn't explain it. They didn't exp- they they went yeah. out of their way to not explain it and you were just supposed to trust the method and spend hundreds of dollars a month to keep your reef tank looking like a skinny supermodel coral. I, I'm no authority on it because I never tinkered with it and I never did much. Um, I remember the Zeovit forum, but my takeaway, and I'll tell you why I think it, I think it was just carbon dosing f- with some other elements, like, you know, maybe some toxic, not toxic, but some metals to, to no, stress so, corals. Right. Some um, slightly toxic elements with just like the very smallest traces of, of actual copper. Yeah. To, to just slightly stress the coral into making it look like that way. But if, like, the key to carbon dosing, right, is you need somewhere, f- well, you don't, but, but like, the fact that you're, you're carrying and, f- and taking care of this thing full of zeolite, so you have a place for the bacteria to go crazy and grow, and then you're adding drops of stuff, which to me is like, okay, one of those probably smelled like vinegar or something, and then the other thing that really became popular with Zeovit was going like the skimmer thing went nuts, right? That's when everybody went premium on skimmers. There were mm. posts about Nog, N-O-G-G, which was like the the memified thing of like just nasty skimmate in your skimmate cup. So it was like share your Nog and everybody was sharing pictures of their skimmers cups and all oh, the nastiness God. inside. But that was all red. That all came out of Zeovit. And that's when like ATB skimmers, Bubble King skimmers, HNS, um, Dell Tech, they all just had this resurgence where everybody was like, why, yes, I'm going to spend a thousand dollars on my skimmer. Cause so you think about like a super powerful skimmer, bacteria substrate, and you dosing droppers or something. To me, that just sounds like a, like carbon dosing and then exporting the, the bacteria with a, a good, powerful skimmer. I could be well, wrong. I mean, I well, don't know. No, no, I think you're right because we didn't do it on purpose, but naturally people started to um, pick apart different elements of the Zeovit system. It was called the Zeovit system. And, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the follow up to that was the ultra low nutrient system yeah. where your nitrates are zero, your phosphates are zero, and people are achieving that through different ways. There was a lot of copycat products. Like, how do you copy something that you don't even understand fully, first of all? But that gave rise to more carbon dosing, right? Like, actually, the old timers. They used carbon dosing. They just just didn't call it that, right? Like potato reactors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they talked about the introduction of different sugar sources for uh, denitrification. Um, God, what's that company in Florida that had their their reef ultra something reef ultra reef nat- oh, natural reef yeah. the natural reef system? But that one was different because you know it was like this weird partial water change where water was moved into a reactor, it was processed, and then it was exchanged with your tank, and it was put back into the tank the same time that water came back into that reaction chamber. Um, but it gave rise to you know uh, a better understanding of carbon dosing, vodka dosing, vinegar, vinegar dosing, VSV, vinegar, vodka, sugar, vinegar, uh, bio pellets, and I mean it made its mark. And I'll tell you what, man, I've seen a lot of tanks that still run zeolite, but not have zeovit style results. There's still people who use zeolite reactors, 
but I don't know if they know what's actually going on or what is expected of it. Do you remember um, Mark Weiss had this apple cider liquid concoction that he sold? Are you talking about Coral Vital? Was it Coral Vital? I mean, yeah, it was, it was carbon dosing, vital. right? It was like you open it up and you're like, this is apple cider vinegar. Like, <laughs> uh, Once again, if someone has a, a bottle of old school Coral Vital, I am desperately adding to, uh, wanting to add that to my you know, antique aquarium product and, and that uh, was like collection. I mean, I don't know when it started, but I remember discovering that in like 21 years ago, man. Like, that's crazy. Oh, no. When I started the Reef Aquarium Hobby, you had to have Coral Vital and you had to have, uh, you know, Biocalcium. Oh, okay. Chocolate Marine Biocalcium. That was the the two things. I don't know if Coral Vital was just the carbon dosing because it made your corals open up more. Like, you saw that in certain corals. So, it probably had more to it. I didn't see the effect in my protein skimmer. Not that I knew to look for differences in my protein skimmer um but yeah that was a that was a good start um yeah i don't know what else to say about the ulns there's still a lot of um tales you know some camps of it where people think that that's what they're aiming for um but i'm not sure i i haven't seen in any current reef tanks exhibiting those early you know pastel coral yeah. colors like we used to see people still do see of it they still use their zeolite and their zeolite reactors and on and on and on but you don't see those same results so why are they using those i don't know i don't have a good answer for you i'm sticking to it being carbon dosing you know fancy skimmers media for bacteria to grow on and drop little drops of this every day in your tank to me that sounds like you know there, there was a fun aspect to it because when your your corals are are doing well yeah and you want to do something for them when you had this little ritual to do like like your coffee right you yeah can press a button on the care rig but if anyone is a you know drip coffee guy i got my chemex you know i got my well-ground coffee i'm, I'm not a grinder but the rich of it um, every day made you feel like you were doing something good for your reef tank every single day. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate. Um, but but once Zeovit happened, people rushed to put their names on a method, on a technique, and there's just like this never-ending parade that continues to today of folks trying to put their name on a system right you had steve tyree's multi-zonal what did he call it <laughs> sponge the cryptic zone that. sponge thing yeah um i think you know maybe within the last 10 years we had the micro scrubbing nano bubbles which was basically just skimming out your tank yeah. It was just it was just getting the funk out of your tank and well like you your know, corals you have- would shed some slimy stuff and that would get go into your overflow box and skimmed out. But then I was like, is that is that good or bad? You know, like does anybody determine <laughs> I do that on some of my tanks twice a year. Okay. Right? Where I just put an airstone in there and just get you know, it, it's you can put, you know, I think it was Julian articles who first turned me on to like storm mode, taking your master jet power head and just blowing off the rocks and just mm. getting all that funk out of there. And I feel like they're, you know, using bubbles to make everything rise to the surface where it can be processed by the filter. is probably a little bit more effective in combination with very strong water flow. But I always thought it was funny. It was like micro scrubbing nano bubbles trademark. It wasn't even trademark. It was just TM, right? So it wasn't even like registered, but I'm like, how is it micro or is it nano? 
<laughs> I gotta just, come up with one of these, man. That's like how I'll win my retirement money, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, we'll, we'll come up with a reef therapy method. Therapy method. MJRT reefing philosophy. There we but go. it's got to be a subscription model. We got to sell them something they have to buy every month and a little mysterious. There's, there's got to be a consumable. But speaking of the subscription model, that's an awesome segue into our next category. And one of our late last categories of reef acquiring methods, and this is the Triton method. And it, it's not even a method. It's just like pieces of all these previous messes we've talked about with very fancy, somewhat questionable water testing. The subscription model was the water testing part. It is the water testing part, right? We're yeah. still talking the last six, seven years where this really hit the scene you know, worldwide. Um, but what is the method? Uh, ICB testing. So you know the precise chemistry, if the values are correct. Um, a algae scrubber. They called her a fugium. Anything else? Uh, no water changes. No water changes, which makes no sense to me at all whatsoever. Because if you're dosing stuff to your tank, you know, potassium um, carbonate or and bicarbonate and calcium chloride, you have this buildup of sodium chloride, which is out of balance with everything else. Well, and I've been corrected. They typically no water changes, but if you have to dilute something, they do advocate water changes, right? So if something's like super high, like your potassium's through the roof because you overdose it, they would advocate you do water changes to bring it down. Don't get me wrong. There's absolutely a scenario where your tank is like 500 gallons, a thousand gallons, and something's out of whack, but you don't necessarily know how the um, classical response is to do a large water change because, you know, let's, let's just press the reset button and everything's cool. But when you start getting to public aquarium spaces where your tank is 5,000, 10, 20, 100,000 gallons, it's just not practical. To, shame, yeah. to exchange a significant portion of the volume in order to make corrections. Agreed. So, you know, when it comes to Triton method for public aquariums, that, that makes a lot of sense. But chasing all these other numbers with results that don't seem super accurate from week to week or month to month or two samples sent in at the same time um, for a 50 gallon tank. Like what, what are you doing, man? Why are you doing all this work? Uh, uh, Triton tests or comparable ICP uh, analyzed water sample that you have to send in generally cost cost between 30 to $50, depending on who you're sending it to. Um, that's a lot more expensive than one bag of salt and one hour to mix it up and change out some water on your tank. Yeah. I'm, so this is one where, again, because I agree with you from, I don't want to have to spend that kind of money, right? Like it's a $50 test, um, you know, and then you debate the frequency of sending that in. But that said, like, let's just take the money subscription model out of the equation. Um, at least it's not snake oil in the sense that, and when I, I say that, I mean, I do think like maybe we don't need to pay attention to all the elements so closely, but, and have them all in like perfect ranges all the time. But by, by that, I mean, again, I know a lot of reefers that have amazing reef tanks that subscribe to this method. So again, going back to us following like Ron Shimmick and just seeing pictures of a sand bed, 
similar to the ecosystem aquarium, like I can't like dog it too hard because the results are like people have beautiful tanks that are very strictly adherent to this methodology. Um, but I, yeah, I, like I don't look at those tanks and think they're like 30% better than maybe the way you set up a reef tank or I set up a reef tank, right? And that's, I think, why these things are always attractive to us is that we're always hunting for that that betterness, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's why Zeovit took off because once we started seeing, what was it, Alexander Gare or something, like some of these Euro guys. Yes. And you saw their tanks with these weird-looking pastel Acrocora. Acro, 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 just SPS. You were like, you know, postlepores and bird's nests just saturated to pink all throughout. Yeah. Yeah. You were just, you, you start chasing that, right? And you're like, oh, it's the method and my method sucks, right? But I mean, at the end of the day, like, I think, you know, some, the ecosystem tanks and the, even this Triton method, like, I've seen some, like, I, I follow their Facebook group and, I see some really nice tanks, but like I don't I, see are, something here's of the like thing, though. oh, see, I'm more on top of my potassium and molybdenum and see how these corals look like I don't see it yet. And that's my only concern. For sure, for sure. There's an element of the meticulousness yeah. of subscribing to a particular method, whether it was Miracle Mud or Zeovit or Triton, that makes you a better reef keeper, right? It's like parenting. Right. Because you Reading a parenting book doesn't make you a better parent, but being the kind of person that will read a parenting book, that's what makes you a better right. parent. You know what I mean? So it's well, not. Well, and like, like what you said about Zeovit, right? Like it made you be a little more engaged with your tank too, right? Like you're more in tune with it. And that's going to indirectly always deliver better results, right? So, mm-hmm. but you're right. Yeah. Like somebody who cares enough to try. To be a better parent, for example, right? Like, and pay attention to the smaller details of yeah. your tank, of your lighting, of your filtration. If you care enough to, you know, drill down into putting in the Zeovit drops every day or sending your Triton for, you know, your test for ICP testing once a month, you know, that's what makes you a better reef keeper. Not the fact that you're actually using Zeovit or that you're using Triton. And again, I, I don't want to speak about stuff I don't like, like, oh, you know what you're talking about. Cause, I have not done a full commitment to a Triton method, you know, and maybe if I did it for six months, I'd have a different opinion. But um, again, I- my only issue is like, you know, Triton method tries to project this image of, you know, uh, f- not philosophy, not religion, but then their primary components, you know, their calcium, alkaline, magnesium are A, B, C, or one, two, three. I don't know which, which one it is right now. It doesn't say on the bottle what it is. I'm not even asking for concentration or a full breakdown of the elements in there, but if we're ta- if we're really trying to get away from this dogma and trying to get away from these techniques and the methods, tell me what's in the freaking bottle. Like I don't need to know the exact concentration because I know you don't want, you know, copycats to mm-hmm. rip you off your product. That's one thing. But don't turn around and give me primary colors and tell me it's scientific. Yeah. That's I mean, not fair. That's not sincere it's not sincere and same thing with the water test right you know okay yeah all right we're double checking my calcium alkalinity magnesium potassium some of the major elements but then all these other trace elements you don't really tell me what they do 
I mean, you don't tell me if this one is super harmful or if I should bring that up or bring yeah. that one down. You just give me, you offer users the entire periodic table of trace elements down to rubidium and vanadium. What does it do? I'm not here to grow sea squirts. I know sea squirts love them some vanadium, but tell me what it does. Give me, show me the research. You know, once again, I think it's a incredible, the ICP uh, tool, the testing is an incredible tool the the bigger your tank is and the less practical it becomes right because it allows some you water. to preserve because natural seawater levels of all of these elements is is a good goal right like if you're not going to do water changes who knows what some of these elements do but it's probably not great you, you probably just want to avoid going out of whack with them right so it's like once again though the icp test results I'm, I'm calling out Triton on this one. They don't tell you what NSW, what natural seawater levels are. They mm -hmm. give you green, yellow, red. Green, it's good. Yellow, it's out. out. Red, it's too much. But isn't they that tell based you it's too off, high or too low? Uh, oh, so it's not based off natural seawater? I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of somewhat, it's again. To it's your point, if I was like syndrome. a public aquarium, like just to have a monthly test that says, your water resembles natural seawater levels and everything. I'd be like, okay, cool. You know, <laughs> like, no, no, there's, there's a, it feels like a deliberate veil of mysticism put on it under the pretense of being scientific. And, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and lump, um, DSR, Dutch synthetic reefing and moonshiners. It's chemistry. Don't See, call it a method when it's just, basic yeah. chemistry you want to get away from the dogma and the religion and that's actually part of your motto don't you know don't don't do that don't do me like that <laughs> i i'll tell you where i tell me what's I in the bottles benefited from tell me ICP, where my though. level should be i think icp is in itself is a gift to the hobby because um one data i love data right and the more data like 10 years from now as we aggregate more and more and more data we're going to start to have some insight into some of those questions but the other thing too is when you have something mysteriously out of whack with your tank and you're trying to just reduce possibilities of what it would be right like the uh, deduction deduction is the word i'm looking for an icp test is great right I mean, like how many times I, have I mean, we seen somebody that's like, oh shit, my copper's through the roof. Oh wow, my the pump first was rusting out. That Kool-Aid. Yeah. I signed up for ICP at Triton's previous loca uh, retail location um, with Isan Dashti. I am Triton, Triton user 1000. You want to trip him up, send him some tests labeled number 1000. I was user number 1000. And... There's just been some instances where like, all right, you won't get a false negative for copper. So I've sent my, my results to a variety of different um, ICP test service providers Yeah. and ICP OES. It's really important to, to distinguish that um, and had zero come out for copper. Oh, I was having some, some tank troubles. Like I yeah. said, if you set an ICP test result and you get a copper reading, it's probably accurate. But if it tells you it's zero, it just doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate. And on a whim one dime after I sent off all my ICP tests um, and when something was just funky and off with a handful of different groups of corals, um, I just popped it into the HANA uh, copper checker and boom, there it was. I'm not saying that the Hannah copper checker was like the be all end all, but it won't give you a false, false positive. Mm. And once I made corrective action to show for the copper that the ICP tests did not report my copper, my corals all got better. 
Yeah. Right. And so yeah, I just, I don't like the, the black box aspect. I don't like them saying it's science or in its chemistry and then de- seemingly deliberately keeping a veil up to keep folks from really figuring out what's going on. I got you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a method. It's chemistry. Yeah. You don't own chemistry. Right, you can't just bring in this super awesome tool to the reef aquarium world and then just you know keep it a little bit mystical so people don't understand it. That's not really fair. That's not really honest, um, but it is very uh, lucrative. So you'd like to see like if if we're going to do chemistry and we're going to talk about elements, let's let's really be sciencey about it and tr- and which carries more transparency around the machine i mean i don't know what they cost now but at the time when they first hit the market they were like a quarter million dollars yeah if you're making this investment into scientific tools don't find these nebulous ways to keep us in the dark and just say oh add more of element number one or less of an element number three b so man (laughs) my and this is a good segue or a good way to go wrap up and get into what i think you want to talk about before we get into that it's a good um time to mention that our reef therapy podcast is sponsored by icp analysis it (laughs) provides an icp service but everything i've said has no bearing on our sponsors i just i want to throw it out there as a disclaimer um but i think he's really going to disrupt the space with the icp ms a version, the mass spec version, um, that, that's going to really change the game um, because they're actually me- that machine. It's a different machine made by the same company that measures the actual mass, not the optical emission spectrum of the element, which has a lot of noise associated with it. So measuring the mass of the elements that's produced by the plasma is a lot more accurate down into sub parts per trillion which means you can take those parts per billion readings a lot more with a lot more faith than you can take those parts per million readings uh, to the bank, I believe, I hope. So on the, on the subject of ICP and, and I guess isolating the technology itself and the tool, it as a tool and not um, looking at the whole methodology that could be built up around it. Again, another article I wrote for you on Reef Builders was – uh, my two, 225 gallon tank, which ran on a calcium reactor, that's pertinent in terms of element additions. And I fed it just freaking pellet food all the time because I with not, no chloride or sodium imbalances. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I don't have my two part, you know, sodium chloride buildup. But um, so calcium reactor, pellet food. Uh, I didn't really do any other additives or droppers or anything else for like more than a year. I think it was like 18 months. Somebody can pull up the article one day and fact check me on that. So I was, I'd never done a water change, right? And that whole time. And uh, I just was curious. So I sent in an ICP test because I've surely some things would be out of whack, right? Some elemental buildup, some elemental depletion. And what blew my mind was, Everything was mostly fine. My iodine was slightly elevated and uh, I think it was tin or zinc. One of those two was slightly elevated, but I see that in a lot of people's ICP tests and that that's just, I think, part of living in America. Um, But that was it. It was like, I passed the ICP exam and I was like, but I didn't do anything, (laughs) right? I didn't, I just ran a calcium reactor and fed new life spectrum pellets. And I mean, I wrote about it. So like, I'm not going to rehash it all, but it was interesting to me that 
I didn't follow the method. I just did no water changes because I was a lazy piece of crap for over a year. And everything looked great. And then it made me kind of wonder, well, why am I doing water changes? Around you weren't lazy. Story? You weren't even hands off. Yeah. You were an observational reefer. Yeah. Everything you looking at the to corals. Look good. Absolutely. If you're doing something, I, I mean, when you have 10 years of experience, I know you have more, but back then you have 10, 15 years of reefer corner experience. You keep looking at the corals day in, day out, you know, week after week, month after month, everything looks great. It's growing. You don't necessarily want to grow it at breakneck speed in supernatural style aquariums. Um, why would you? Why would you change something? Yeah, it's, and it's doing I'm awesome. not advocating doing that. It just was an interesting thought experiment because I had intended to do a water change because I felt bad, right? I was like, ah, maybe I should. Maybe, maybe there's some elemental imbalance. And then, but but then I was like, you know, the our nature is like, well, yeah, but what's imbalanced, right? Like, oh, you got to do water changes because you don't want to have an imbalance or a buildup or a depletion. It's like, okay, well, let's actually test for that and see if that's actually true. Even if your alkalinity drifted over a couple years to, let's say, four, four and a half, and your calcium drifted to 600 over a period of two years, if your corals are acclimated to it and, and they're it's looking slow good. slow change, right? Like it's, it's a, the, the slowest change. Yeah. Why? If your tank is looking good and you're doing things day in, day out, just, yeah, just, just enjoy it, you know? And I would come around to kind of summarize our discussion of all these methods and saying, hey, man, there's a lot of offshoots. You know, Prodibio was introducing specific uh, bacterial strains that has a lot of merit. Um, when you're introducing the food for those bacteria at the same time, different bacterial additives, uh, bio pellets. I mean, there's just lots of branches to this main trunk that we uh, highlighted now. And I would say that all my tanks now are more Berlin than they've ever been. Yeah. Maybe less rock, more corals, still bare bottom, still protein skimming. You know, I ICP and the Triton definitely turned me on to paying even more attention to certain trace elements because we weren't shooting blindly in the dark and just dosing a couple things and looking for reactions. Um, I worry more about overshooting different trace elements than undershooting, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, I would say all my aquariums are, you know, typically Berlin method, the way I was first, you know, introduced to mini reef keeping um, with just better bells and whistles, you know, dosing pumps, uh, automatic calcium reactors, uh, programmable LED lights and all that jazz. Um, but I mean, I guess at the end of the day, you know, if you find a technique with name or otherwise that works for you and it's resulting in good success for you, man, just run with it. Enjoy it. Don't, don't, don't question it just because we're <laughs> just because we're trying to like chip away and criticize every aspect of all these um, commercialized techniques, but definitely the, the, the movement uh, of having these different people put together all these different uh, processes has enabled us to just have, you know, much better, uh, longer term success with a, a wider range of reef aquarium animals. Yeah, I, I mean, you you hit it on the head. If if doing the Triton method, if doing the Zeovit method gives you, you know, you you feel like it works for you and it gives you that engagement with your tank, keep doing it. But I I don't know. I mean, I I chased these methods for years and I was still, you know, still thinking there was something on the horizon, right and 
and in the end, I mean, I'm not as simplified as you are. Like I, the, the one differentiator between you and me is I like to grow algae in my sump and I do like a substrate, right? But I, I've just, I I I've that, course I corrected, big, right? Like I've got I had that just, big barrel of ketomorpha for the longest time. Yeah. I was using not for nitrate or nutrient reduction, but more for two things. One, to absorb CO2 and then for phytoremediation because if things got a little high, they would be accumulated in the tissue of the ketomorpha as I'm throwing it away. But then I found out that my nitrate was 0.00 when Hannah introduced the low-range nitrate checker. I was like, okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> that's the only reason I got rid of it. I'm just like, oh, I have to add nitrate now? Okay, I don't need an algae scrubber of any kind. Yeah, I, I still run one. I run crushed coral on the sand bottom, which is sacrilegious, but I think it looks better. You can have more flow with it and your tangs will graze it like it's just live rock. So you actually mm -hmm. have a cleaner sand bed. Um, my, you know, my favorite substrate is reborn. Yeah. And your Coral tangs bones. will eat it. Like will like graze algae off of it. Like I bought it's live two rock. Bags. I bought, I found two old bags of two little fish. The old reborn. stuff. Yes, oh. the old stuff. It had been in a bag kind of wet for long enough that there was like a little algae growing inside of it. I paid like dumb price for it because I had to have it. Even though like I'm not planning to use it right now, but one day I would like to build a reef tank again where I have that coral bones rubble bottom where every little type of coral can just fall into it and just grow out of it it was it was really really fun um but yeah i, I would i would just um advise uh, all the viewers and listeners uh not to get hung up on any one technique yeah. on any dogma or methodology you know cherry pick cherry pick the the, the components that work for you if you want to have you know uh uh berlin style aquarium and put a tray of miracle mud in a corner of your sump and, you know, dose some zeal of it while sending off some, some stuff to get ICP tested, have at it. Just, well, just have fun. This is supposed to be fun. There's been some notable experts that put out there that the failure of many Aquarius is that they hybridize methods and they should stick to the true method of something. And I call total BS on that. I think yeah. it's totally great to cherry pick and choose things that you like from different methods and, and just kind of come up with your own thing as well. Or, well, it's not even your own thing because we're all just variations of each other, you know, when it comes to this hobby. But the moment you put a name on your reef keeping technique, there's a moment you're picking out a camp and you're, if you pick out a camp, you won't learn from the Zeovit guys. You won't learn from the Miracle Mud guys. You won't learn from the Triton guys. You know, you're just going to isolate yourself. So, you know, just don't don't go that route at all and just keep yourself agnostic, just like politics, and just enjoy your tank. And it's about the corals, not necessarily how you get there. Yeah, and I just, there, there's no such, there's no subscription necessary to have a good reef tank, right? <laughs> you don't have to buy someone's additives. You don't have to buy someone's mud. There's no subscription necessary to, to have a successful reef tank. Now, you may Absolutely. have fun with those subscription methods, but I just hate people throwing money away if they don't have to. You know, it's just... Absolutely. So, anyway. Well, this is one of our longest sessions of reef therapy, and how suitable is it before you go out of town? Um, I want to thank everybody who's uh, you know supported the reef therapy podcast, especially ICP analysis. I, I want I want to know more about my trace elements. I really do, but every time I see 
one little thing off on my ICP results, I go immediately to Google Scholar, type in the name of the element, and then like to type in like coral growth or acropora or reef, and there's just no real tangible information for me to sink my teeth into. And so, I mean, these are just tools, and we're you know really at the bleeding edge. And you know, you don't put your name on actual chemistry. <laughs> just don't do it. Just don't do it. But it does make me wonder, you know, if there's any methods left in the future. Oh, dude, right? I, I asked that question 15 years ago when Zeovit started to show up. I was like, what's next, right? We'll be 60 years old one day. I, I know you just had a birthday, so happy birthday. Welcome to welcome to my, you know, my decade <laughs> that I'm <laughs> with the, the 40s, but we'll be 60 one day and like we'll probably have to revisit this conversation <laughs> cuz there'll be like the I don't know. I don't even know what, you know, what, what I, to call I did, it. I did see another content creator saying, hey, it would be really nice if there was actually like a, a, a wireframe skeleton recipe of reef keeping that you could branch off from. So I've been thinking about that for maybe about a year of just how to put together something in t into just a stripped down, no marketing, no jargon, no black box um, method of reef keeping, which would not – I mean – you could put a name to it so people can kind of subscribe or whatever, but it would just be good biology, good ecology, good chemistry. So you could start with, I mean, you really just start foundational with like a Lee Chin setup and then say, okay, let's say you want to improve flow because that's good for corals. And then you can start to talk about different types of flow. And then you could say, hey, you know what? Adding a skimmer is not a bad, like is, is a, is a, is a good addition to that method, right? And you could almost build from there but all of it is sort of take it, take it or leave it, right? But it, absolutely, that's that. That'd be a cool, cool thing. You to know, do. I'm I'm kind of on that process right now with the reefology series that we've kicked off on Reef Builders Channel. So if you're watching this on Reef Therapy or listening to this on your favorite podcatcher, make sure to like and comment and rate us if you enjoy this content. Um, but I'm trying to do that with reefology. It's just like strip things down to the bare essentials, not trying to create a, a technique, but just trying to get things down to the fundamentals. And that way, once you have a good background, um, you'll be able to evaluate what everybody else is doing. By the way, just real quick, you remember your discussion about Chato and the two different types of Chato? Yes. So I got some Chato... Uh, it's pronounced keto. Keto. Sorry, keto morpha. <laughs> um, and, Do you say chato don? Do you say chato don? Uh, actually, you say I, I did for butterfly fish. I, yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, I I struggled for a long time growing keto, which is why I went back to Clarepa because it was the clumpy, ratty, nasty like baseball keto. And so uh, I gave up on it, but then the tank was doing well. And I was like, eh, you know, I kind of want to diversify the algae in my, my uh, calerpa or algae, macroalgae scrubber. So I ordered some and I totally forgot I threw it in there. Um, and a week later, I went in and it's that light green, yes. long, stringy spaghetti stuff. Super and I was like, oh, I got the good one. You know, the, it just made me think of you when I saw right. it. One more thing, man. I'm going to call out Pax Bellum on this because they really push the macroalgae reactor. How are you pushing macroalgae reactors and telling people to dose iron and manganese and these things that algae you know, use up, but then you don't even drill down into different types of ketomorpha, different species. There's like 70 species of ketomorpha. Like you should be the one. 
Yeah. You should be the one pushing the envelope. If you really believe in macroalgae, you know, scrubbing as a form of nutrient export, you should know more than anyone else about different types of ketomorpha. I just, I shouldn't have to stumble upon this like eight or nine years after you introduce your macroalgae reactor. Some people have incredible experiences. People have, other people have terrible experiences and maybe it just boils down to the exact species of macroalgae you're using. I, I don't, I don't get those re like those type of reactors. It just seems like why not just stick a light in a sump compartment? I mean, basket. It, yeah, basket. I, it, it seems like more work, man. <laughs> just more once again, more like auto top offs, like I see testing on huge tanks. There are certain setups where it's just not practical to do that, and you really want to concentrate that nutrient export into some kind of algae scrubber. And in some very limited cases, it makes a lot of sense. But that doesn't mean it applies across the board. Agreed. You have any uh, final thoughts on uh, reef aquarium methods and methodologies? Man, I think we've uh, covered this topic more than anyone has in a really long time. No, I uh, – man, I, I mean, we, we went on long enough, but um, – <laughs> I'd love to hear people's take on the different methods, their levels of success with it in the comments. If we missed any that you thought had some significance, you know, in the history of reef keeping, I'd love to hear about that. Um, and I, I don't know. I just want to say, like, we maybe we come off skeptical about methodologies, but um, I, like I said, I, for a lot of these, they work for people, right? Like, that, that's why they persist. Uh, in the hobby just because it's the but, first method that you were successful at doesn't mean it's the method the only method you'll ever be successful at right you know? whatever let's enjoy our corals right we yeah. can step back from the tribalism more than any other topic we've ever covered i'd love to have it extended conversations with people face to face on how they reef. Um, but we'll make do with the comments, uh, on the reef therapy YouTube channel. So if you're listening to this on podcast form or your favorite podcatcher, check out the reef therapy YouTube channel where we can really engage with you guys. And we'll periodically pick up some of those questions to include into our sessions of reef therapy. So Mark, have a great time in Hawaii, and thank you so much for joining me on the 22nd session of Reef Therapy. Sounds good, man. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy. Talk to you soon.